Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm very pleased to be joined by my co-host, and actually, I'm going to do this and wow. move her because Thank you. I typically would like to be on the same level. And uh, her name is Rania Kalix. She's very wonderful. And we're pleased on this week's Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast to be joined by Anthony Lowenstein, who is based in Australia, joining us there in the evening. Uh, he's the author of the book, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. He's also a past guest. Uh, a previous book he wrote was Disaster Capitalism. You might be familiar with his work, and we're very pleased to be speaking with him again. Thank you for joining, Anthony. I'm wrapped to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, and so I suppose I... We can get specific immediately, and we probably should, but I always feel like since writing a book is such a project, it's, it's worth asking the author why you chose to write the book or, or, or why you framed it like this. I mean, you've done some work on Palestine and the Israeli military occupation for some time. You're familiar with these issues. Um, I know that you... Um, do a lot of global correspondent work. Um, disaster capitalism took you to these areas. You probably, in the course of reporting on that book, came across material that you were able to use for this book. So, you know, wh why, why this project? So I've been reporting on Palestine for about 20 years, and I first went there in 2005. And every three or four years, I went back there reporting from the West Bank or Gaza. And in 2016 to 2020, I was living in Sheikh Jarrah, um, in East Jerusalem with my partner and a young child at one point. And I guess something that I started seeing when I was there, I and mean, obviously I'd noticed some of these issues before, but there was a sense somehow that I didn't want to write something that was just about the conflict. I don't minimise the importance of doing that. There are people who need to write about what's going on every day. That's vital. I'm not dismissing that. But I wanted to do something I guess, bigger in a way, because what I was seeing more and more was how the occupation was being exported. There are so many conflicts around the world that I've reported on, as horrible as they are, they are very geographically located in that place. I was living in South Sudan in 2015. South Sudan has got a horrible conflict for the last decade plus, huge death toll, but generally what's happening there stays there. What's happening in Israel-Palestine is not staying in Palestine. Of course, Palestinians are suffering under occupation, that's to be sure. But what's happening is Israel has exported the occupation to various places around the world, the technology, the tools, the methods, the ideology, and very effectively, from its perspective, and I felt it was worth exploring what that would actually look like and why Israel was doing that. You know, I, I think it's a, such an important... I've always thought this was a very important topic um, because, you know, there are these places where people live that, you know, where people have very few rights and they're places of extreme vulnerability. And in situations like that, uh, you have the opportunity to use it as like a laboratory for the world, yeah. which is essentially what this is all about, right? Is like yeah. Palestine being this kind of laboratory. You know, it, it reminds me of a conversation we've had before with Todd Miller, yes. who's written, who's done a lot of work about border militarization. And he actually makes a similar argument about how borders are, yeah. um, also kind of like these laboratories where all these kinds of technologies of surveillance and, and uh, domination are tested on people who really don't have any rights because they're just like refugees and migrants and things like this. Um, 
And in a way, if you, you could argue that this is Israel being internationalist. I'm just joking. But um, why don't we, I think one, one good way to look at this, because there's so much involved here, is maybe if we talk about maybe different geographic areas of the world. So why don't we start with Israel in Latin America, which is something you go into, um, which some people have maybe heard something about before in terms of Israel's role in certain Latin American countries. Um, other people may have no idea, and it does seem kind of strange because Israel is on the other side of the world. Um, yeah. But tell us what's going on there, and how does what does that have to do with Palestinians? So what I do in the book is I do a brief history lesson, not kind of in a dull way, but I look particularly at how Israel has able to monetize its military, not just since 67, but since really not 48 necessarily, but certainly from the 50s, 1950s. And really from the 1950s and 60s, there are a number of Latin American dictatorships, mostly backed by the U.S., this accelerated after 1967, not because of that war, but certainly accelerated in those decades after 67. And a lot of those regimes were looking at what Israel was doing, particularly in the West Bank and Gaza, with admiration, how they were fighting what they saw as a noble counterinsurgency, how they were fighting against local populations, how they were controlling Palestinians, and that was seen as something they wanted to copy themselves. So you had huge numbers of Israeli um, military figures, both public and private, going to Latin American countries. I'm talking about Guatemala, Colombia, and others, Honduras, particularly in the 70s and 80s, although it started before and it continued after then, to train local militaries. We're talking about everything from death squads to torture methods to selling weapons. And you have, you have I have in the book lots and lots of these quotes of leaders or military figures in these countries talking about why they so admired Israel. They didn't particularly do it because they liked Jews or, or they disliked Jews. I mean, often these regimes, to be clear, were deeply anti-Semitic regimes, discriminated against Jews, publicly hated Jews, and yet this had no impact on Israel and Israelis working for these regimes. So it was more propping up these regimes. And one thing that became very clear in this period was that Israel almost became America's wingman. And what I mean by that is that militarily, America, of course, was then and now the world's biggest superpower. It provides roughly now 40% of the world's weapons. That's actually a number is increasing in the last few years. But back then, America remained the world's biggest arms dealer. And even in countries that America felt, for whatever reasons, often politically they could not sell weapons, Israel often came in and sold weapons to those nations with the knowledge of America. In other words, they worked hand in hand. So in times where a certain regime, Guatemala, Colombia, committed egregious human rights abuses, massacres, there may have been a brief time in the US Congress then where there was pressure not to sell weapons to country X or country Y. When that happened, Israel was more than happy to fill that void and selling everything, as I said, from the tools and technologies back then, which in included surveillance technology. Obviously, it was pre-digital, but there was surveillance technology. But also, in some places, it was the ideology. Now, not so much ethno-nationalism necessarily back then, although that was part of it for some places, but it was also the, idea, the ideology of domination. Why certain people, for example, in Guatemala, under a genocidal regime, were deemed to be justified to be exterminated. Israel was providing clear and obvious, which wasn't, by the way, even secret at the time. I have details in the book of CBS news reports, hardly alternative media, openly talking about why the Guatemalan regime in the 80s 
wanted Israeli assistance, openly were, were calling for more Israeli assistance. And the Guatemalan regime at the time were literally committing genocide against their own indigenous populations. So although for most people who are sane, that would be seen as, a, as not even question, you wouldn't even say crossing a red line, it's so beyond the pale, but that actually was a wonderful advertisement for Israeli experience in technology in that part of the world and many other parts of the world. So obviously I'm not saying in the book or, or arguing that the only country in the world that provides this is Israel. That's not true. The US remains almost the king, the dominant in virtually every country on the planet. I mean, I think America's got 750 bases around the world. Israel can't compete with that. Israel doesn't have massive amounts of military bases. But what Israel does have in its backyard is an occupied population and has that for now 56 years. And this obviously goes back to 48. I mean, particularly it accelerated after 67. So you have a captive population that Israel tests weapons on, tests tools and technologies on, and that then is used. And Israeli companies say this quite openly. It's battle-tested in Palestine, the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem. This was happening back then, and it's massively expanded after 9-11. You're on mute, Kevin. Yes, I am. <laughs> I wanted to get really specific and uh, ask you about this diplomatic cable that WikiLeaks published from Columbia. And I'll just reference it from mm. your book because your you know, publisher was very nice to send me a copy I'm so that, that I could uh, do this interview today. Um, you, you read about Columbia and the Israeli relationship um, and that... Uh, a State Department cable from Bogota in 2009 revealed the presence of Israeli company Global Comprehensive Security Transformation, or, or Global CST, that was founded by Major General Israel Ziv, a former head of the Operations Directorate of the IDF, which is the military. The uh -huh. firm was contracted to assist the Colombian military in its war against the FARC rebel group, and the cable was scathing. Over a three period, Ziv worked his way into the confidence of former defense minister Juan Manuel Santos by promising a cheaper version of U.S. government assistance without our strings attached. We and the government of Colombia learned that Global CST had no Latin American experience and that its proposals seemed designed more to support Israeli equipment and services sales than to meet in-country needs. And then you go on and share some more details, but but maybe you want to tell us how that might be a quintessential example of what you were uncovering as you researched the book. Let me just say on that point before I do that one thing I found throughout researching and writing this book, as I pretty much found for the last 15 years, that WikiLeaks documents, this is going to be a shout out to my fellow Australian Julian Assange, is so essential to understanding the world. I mean, I say this over and over and over again, that if anyone, any journalist, thinker, human, wants to understand how global power works, WikiLeaks documents, I mean, I know I'm preaching to the converted here with you guys, but I'm just saying I think it's important that people realise that a lot of Assange has been demonised for so long that this document, and along with millions of others, really explains so much how power works, which I think, in my view, is a big reason why he's being prosecuted and, and killed by process at the moment. But I just wanted to say that just as, a, as an aside. And also because as a fellow Australian, it's always 
odd to me to think that in the last 50 years, there are two very prominent media figures in the world who are Aussie. There's Rupert Murdoch and Julian Assange. And you really couldn't get two more different people than those two, to put it mildly. Anyway, so that document that you just quoted, Kevin, really I think is fascinating because in some ways it goes to the heart of what Israel was trying to do. Santos, who's quoted there, the then defence minister, became president of Colombia and remained, was then and still today is a key, not just ally of Israel, but routinely goes around the world praising Israel and its counterinsurgency, so-called techniques in Palestine. And one thing that you find that the document reveals is that in the last, happened particularly since the 70s, but accelerated since 9-11, the mass privatisation of Israeli repressive services. The US obviously has done that with Blackwater and many others as well. So it's not unique to, to, the, uh, to Israel, but Israel has done this very successfully, again, from its perspective, that there are so many people, it's like a funnel. The Israeli military is relatively unique in the world. Yes, the US does it, but not that many other countries do where there is this very, it's deliberate plan for the Israeli military, the intelligence unit, unit A200 and others to funnel people into the private sector, to develop private security companies, um, surveillance tech, spyware, whatever it may be. And then they're used as an arm of the state. So one of the things that's often frustrated me is so much of the coverage of these issues in the media make it sound like there are these rogue Israeli companies running around selling spyware to Saudi Arabia. It's complete bullshit. This is not a rogue company. I'm talking about NSO Group here, or which we can talk about later if you'd like. But this is, and this this was the case with this company here that you just mentioned there too. That when often in the majority of cases, when these companies are operating in not Israel essentially, so a foreign country, they're often operating as an arm of the state, an unofficial arm of the state of the Israeli state. They're either doing things the state doesn't want to do so openly, similar to, say, what Blackwater were doing other military figures post-9-11, that the US would hire these companies to do the dirty work they didn't want to be on the books, so to speak. And in Colombia, it was the same. The war against the FARC was an unbelievably brutal, ugly, bloody war that killed huge numbers of people. It's still a war that is ongoing in a way. The FARC has technically disbanded, but there are many other FARC-like organizations that exist in Colombia and Israel has had a massive presence in that country for decades they've helped train military figures they've assisted in death squads they've given advice about counterinsurgency it was really important for the Colombians to often get training and what they wanted to was mimic what Israel was doing to the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza and what's so maybe strange in a way is that because it was viewed by many as a success Success, meaning that what Israel is doing in Palestine, particularly the West Bank and Gaza, is viewed as a successful counterinsurgency. Now, obviously, I would, I would question that in many, many ways, what success obviously means, clearly. But success, in their view, would be the Colombian military's view, the Israeli state's view, the Guatemalan genocidal regime's view, that the so-called insurgents haven't won in inverted commas, Israel's in charge. Israel controls all the land, sea and air territory around Palestine. I mean, I would question how much Israel's actually winning. We can obviously have that conversation. But in terms of how it's viewed by these other regimes, Israeli techniques are something that they want to copy. And in Colombia, over successive presidents, as that document said, um, and I should also just add that 
the guy who was you were mentioning there, the Israeli former military figure, was also involved in selling repressive um, training and technology to South Sudan, and in fact was sanctioned by the U.S. government. Now, when you're being sanctioned by the U.S. government, who sort of loves war crimes, that pretty much says a lot. Although the Trump administration took that sanction off for reasons that are never entirely clear. I mean, I can guess, but probably rather not say on the record. But yes, um, the Colombian example is just one of many of why the Israeli so-called counterinsurgency laboratory is so appealing to nations that want to crush their own so-called insurgency or unwanted population. And then, of course, another uh, aspect of all this that you go pretty deeply into is the surveillance technology that Israel has. It really plays a leading role in, like around the world, like globally speaking, their companies are are at the forefront. Uh, and I hadn't even realized like that you have this section where you talk about even how the COVID-19 pandemic was like an opportunity uh, yeah. for these companies to sell their to sell their wares around the world. But can you talk a little bit about uh, the Israeli surveillance industry and how that has been exported for use elsewhere? So the surveillance industry has existed for decades. Um, I talk about certain, um, this is obviously analog technology back in the 70s of sort of the various states were buying these kind of quite large machines that essentially were able to listen to analog telephone calls in various Latin and South American countries particularly. Obviously, technology has changed, 9-11 happens. And in the last 15 years or so, Israel has, has really become an Israeli company's NSO group has been obviously the most famous. Virtually all of them are staffed by veterans of the IDF. They're staffed by veterans of Unit 8200, which is the intelligence unit of the Israeli military. I mean, their job day to day is to monitor every single phone call, every single communication of every single Palestinian. It doesn't mean they're listening to every single call, but it means that every single communication can be surveilled, both in and out of Palestine. And, of course, there's been lots of information around how these kinds of um, surveillance allows Palestinians to be blackmailed. And essentially what has happened in the last 10 years is that Companies like NSO Group and others, and there are many others like NSO Group, and Pegasus gets all the attention, the sophisticated hacking tool that's been used against Jamal Khashoggi and Jeff Bezos, amongst many, many, many others. And I've interviewed many of those people in the book, you know, dissidents in Togo and um, widows of murdered journalists in Mexico. Mexico, by the way, for the record, is the country that's used Pegasus more than any other country in the world. They're obsessed with it in Mexico. This is previous government's current government and the current government denies it but the fact is there's evidence that the current government is using it against dissidents and critics of the regime despite being a left-wing government nominally left-wing government but what Israeli spyware has done is that it has basically become a their world leaders in the field I mean the top two or three companies are Israeli I think this really goes to the heart of what's happening in the last few years so Biden comes in and he quite remarkably, initially puts a um, sanction on NSO Group and one other company, which at first, on the face of it, seems like quite an important thing. Israel is a close ally of the US. Why the hell is he sanctioning NSO Group? But one thing I talk about in the book, and I've thought a lot about this in the last while, is that I don't really see this as sanctioning an Israeli company. 
what America wants to do is maintain its dominance in spyware. Israel is seen as a threat. Now, Israel is a close ally of the US, but what is very clear is that Israel and the US spy massively on each other, mm. hugely on each other. And yes, they're very good friends and they obviously share so-called you know, values and ideals, whatever the hell they are. But the best information that I had in the book was that the US has every day at least 400 essentially spies in the US government spying on Israel, at least every day. Communication, details, what the Israeli government is doing. And you can presume that works both ways. To take the lead of Rania, which I think she was on the right track here, we, we discussed Latin America. What if we move to another geographic area and just try to work our way through the world here, which I think is useful for people to understand the global reach of Israel and to truly illustrate and, and show that this isn't just something where it's a U.S. to Israel relationship. Here in the U.S., there's been a fair amount of coverage, especially with the uprisings around, uh, we'll, we'll just say broadly speaking, the Black Lives Matter uprisings that 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 people got attention uh, Rania covered it, the relationships that U.S. police departments have made with um, Israel. So people know that aspect. So I think the eye-opener for me as someone who is in this space is seeing some of these stories told about what these countries are doing with Israel that we never talk about, that they don't really ever make it into our conversation about world news. So it's a broad continent, but let's go to the African continent. What do you, when you were doing this, you brought up South Sudan, maybe that's the one that's the most staggering when it comes to the relationships that are being formed in the effort to uh, export uh, these techno this technology. Uh, but, to, but to you, you know, what does the African continent represent when we're talking about the Palestine Laboratory? Israel sees Africa as an opportunity. And I think we should look at this briefly, the historical context for much of the Cold War. I'm generalizing here, but a lot of Africa was siding with the Soviet Union, not all, but many, and therefore were not friendly with Israel. The Cold War ends a number of years ago, and Israel sees it as its mission. This is both during Netanyahu before him, and obviously he's now back in power as kind of a way to befriend these nations. And often what they do, they being Israel and the Mossad in countries without official even relations with Israel, they hold these weapons out or spyware as a diplomatic sort of carrot. In other words, saying, we would love to be friends with you. This is the case, whether it's in Togo or South Sudan or UAE. I mean, the list goes on around the world and saying, we will sell you this technology. You can spy on whoever the hell you want. In other words, NSO being a private company is being used by the Israeli state as a diplomatic carrot. And therefore, hopefully you'll vote for us nicely in the UN. You won't vote against the occupation. And what you find is state after state after state. Obviously, yes, whenever there's a vote in the UN General Assembly or Security Council General Assembly, the vast majority of the world still votes against Israel. That hasn't radically changed in the last years. You have normally most of the world on one side and the other side is the US, Israel, Australia, Micronesia, Palau, and maybe Nauru. So I'm very glad Australia is on the wrong side of history there, which is very painful for many of us here. But 
you do find in a number of votes in the UN, some of these countries that Israel has sold spyware weapons to are voting with Israel or abstaining. And that does make a difference because, as I say in the book, for a long, long time, I guess you could say the savvier Israeli officials realise the occupation was going to be a problem for them, a problem meaning to get diplomatic support globally. They kind of realised that a lot of people just didn't like the fact that they were occupying another people seemingly indefinitely. So how do you kind of address that if you have no intention of ending the occupation? You develop weapons, you sell weapons, you sell technology, you sell spyware, you sort of make it seem like if you as a regime want to repress your own people, Africa was a key place for this, both in the past and today. I mean, South Sudan, this is an example. The Israelis have sold spyware to the South Sudanese regime under President Kia, who is a dictator. He's a brutal dictator. There's been horrendous war crimes committed there. The country founded in 2011, but there's been a civil war there for now 10 years since 2013. And there's clear evidence that the Israelis were selling this horrible spyware to an utterly brutal regime. Why? At one level, it's money. I mean, money is definitely a factor. It's partly capitalism, to be sure, and frankly, disaster capitalism. But also, I think it's a way to get influence. Um, it's a way, I mean, weapons and spyware and, and the most sophisticated, intrusive surveillance tech, in some ways, is what makes friends. Now, you can argue that, what was that famous line? No country really is friends with any other country. This is very, everything is quite transactional. And Israel very much sees it that way. Again, it's not unique to Israel. There's a French and German and American arms industry, which is hardly clean. I mean, let's face it, I know that. But the Israeli one in some ways for a country which is so small population-wise, and again, it has a captive population. In many of these countries that I'm talking about in Africa, how Israel has used this technology and tools against the Palestinians, that's the key selling point because it's viewed as being successful. And Africa, as I said, is an area now where Israel's actually had quite a lot of success in the last years. I'll give an example of, um, just briefly, Togo, a country that really never gets attention in the media. Togo is a dictatorship. Uh, Togo has bought Israeli spyware. And in fact, they show in the book in many countries around the world, including parts of Africa, um, Hungary, Modi, India, um, and others, that when Netanyahu in the last 10, 15 years visited these countries, within six or 12 months, these countries are often using Pegasus. It's not accidental. Rwanda is another example. There are so many examples. So again, it's clearly what's happening here, and this is confirmed by Israeli journalists I've spoken to and just the facts that Israel is clearly trying to make friends by holding out these tools as a carrot and very successfully from its perspective by selling all these tools and technologies to repressive regimes. To some extent, you are making friends as much as one can make friends in a diplomatic arena, right? So I sort of see it as also finally an insurance policy meaning that I think there are some in Israel who worry that maintaining an endless occupation is not that sustainable. It's sustainable today and tomorrow and next week. And frankly, in my view, sadly, I think for the short to medium term, it's very sustainable from their perspective. But at some point, who knows what happens? There's some unpredictable war. BDS grows in size. 
um, the US suddenly elects you know, a radical leader. I mean, who knows what happens, right? You cannot, can't predict the future. But if you've sold so many tools and technologies and spywares to so many other countries around the world, it's almost like they need you. They need you to keep selling the technology, updating that technology, maintaining that technology. And you see that in country after country after country. To me, Israel is relatively secure in its position as an occupying power because not just because the international order is set up in a way that virtually no one opposes. The Arab countries are mostly now in day with Israel. The US is too. The EU might release a terse you know, press release and say they're very concerned about the occupation. Like, where is that pressure going to come from internationally? Country-wise, I'm talking about. I'm not talking about civil society. I'm talking about country-wise. At the moment, Israel would feel pretty comfortable. There's not a lot of international pressure on Israel at all, in fact. Um, you might not, one might not necessarily think that if one reads parts of the international media or look at votes in the UN, but realistically, day-to-day, Israel has very few um, opponents internationally, I would say. And I think a key part of that now is by selling all this tech and technology and repressive tools. Israel's now the 10th biggest arms dealer in the world, by the way. They're insuring themselves from potential future headwinds by making friends with so many other countries. And at the moment, I would say from their perspective, it's working. You know, another, another aspect of all of this that I think is interesting, and I love the title of this chapter, by the way, because it's so just straightforward, is social media companies don't like Palestinians. That's like the best articulation yeah. of, mm. of this issue that I've ever heard. Um, and I mean, we've all, we, we've all seen that happen. We've all seen Palestinian outlets and, and Palestinian voices be completely scrubbed from online. Uh, for, for reasons that don't make any sense, while, of course, actual, like, Israeli voices that can call for genocide of Palestinians, and there's no repercussions for that. Yeah. Um, and this is really widespread. I mean, we're talking not just Twitter, not just Instagram. It's also, like, Facebook and YouTube. And even at this point, you know, I don't think – I don't know if you had this in here, but, like, even these AIs, like ChatGPT, I think I saw um, – which isn't a social media company, but whatever, it's, you know, online. Yeah. I think I saw like this meme going around that somebody had put uh, like posed two questions to ChatGPT, and, and one of them was, do Palestinians deserve to be free? And the response was something like, well, that's a complicated question. You see, and then they did the same question, but it was, do Israelis deserve to be free? And it was like, of course, all people deserve to be free. Yeah. Um, anyways, yeah. Can, you talk, can you talk a bit about the social media company aspect of all this, the Israeli role in, in, in influence over social media companies when it comes to actually censoring certain voices on this issue? You know, one of the interesting things about this is that Israel, when I say Israel, elements in the Israeli government are worried that it's much more difficult to control the media narrative with social media. You know, back in the day until relatively recently, in the US, for example, is a handful of major newspapers and with some exceptions and, you know, studies have shown this, Palestinian voices are virtually invisible, have been for essentially ever. That's changed a little bit now, obviously ridiculously slowly, but, you know, now and then you do read a Palestinian in the New York Times, you know, wow. But social media presents a challenge because lots of people are using it. There are people in Palestine who are tweeting and Facebooking and Instagram what they're seeing on the ground. There's a war in Gaza and they're showing people what's happening, what their lives are like, what, what a brutal occupation looks like. And Israel was worried about that. And how they addressed that was a few ways. One, putting huge amounts of pressure on these companies to essentially censor or shadow ban 
Palestinian perspectives, Palestinian voices successfully. I should say this is obviously not the only country where these companies are doing that. I mean, there's evidence, as I'm sure viewers will know, of social media companies being complicit complicit in genocide in Myanmar, complicit in genocide in Ethiopia. I mean, there are a lot of issues that social media companies are involved in um, because, I mean, as I say in the book, and I think this is relevant for Israel and Palestine, their priority, and the best way to put it is, their priority is very similar to the US State Department. What I mean by that is that the language and the way in which they deal with countries and conflicts usually mirrors the US State Department's approach. So if, for example, you're a friend, but you commit abuses, it may be overlooked. Mm-hmm. If you're a so-called enemy, then well, I mean, the Palestinians, for example, uh, amongst others, enemy of, say, the US or enemy, I mean, of the Israelis, you're going to be censored. And there's also evidence of these companies routinely being lobbied hugely by the Israeli state, by Israeli officials, Palestinians in Palestine, Palestinians in general, don't really have the same ability or tools to do so. And I give some examples in there of what's happened since the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year, where it's very clear that so many of the so-called rules that are applied here are totally arbitrary. If you generally are a Palestinian and you would write something on Facebook like, Netanyahu deserves to die and I want to kill him, for example, good chance it'll be censored or removed. And I'm not saying that necessarily is a bad thing. I'm saying that's generally what would happen. As Rania said, there are heaps of examples of Israeli Jews posting genocidal comments, violent comments, organising violent attacks within Israel itself, not censored, not cut, not removed. And this to me, I think, goes to the heart, and I say this in the book and various people said this to me when I interviewed them, that... In the end, it just doesn't feel like there's really any incentive for these companies to change at the moment because the political pressure is mostly coming from one side only. But I'll just finish on this point. You know, what's interesting is despite all this censorship, shadow bannings, and as Rain rightly says, there's an inherent bias here. I mean, obviously AI has its own issues because obviously what inf- AI is getting, chat GPT is getting information that's essentially what's on the internet. So if you're getting information from one particular perspective, surprise, surprise, it comes out with a much more pro-Israel perspective. But I think it's also worth saying that I think that there's a reason in many countries, including the US, that public opinion is changing on Palestine. And the polls show this very, very clearly. This year, for the first time, more Democratic voters support Palestinians than um, Israeli Jews. Uh, there's been a couple of surveys of young Isra- young American Jews in the last few years. The most famous was in 2021, where a quarter of Israeli, a quarter of American Jews said Israel was an apartheid state. I think a quarter said Israel was committing genocide against Palestinians. This would have been unheard of 15, 20 years ago. And to me, this has a lot to actually to do with social media. So it's happening not because of the mainstream media, but in spite of it. And so therefore, yes, there's a massive amount of censorship. I'm not, obviously the book goes into detail. I'm not minimizing any of that. But I think in some ways, Israel is fighting to some extent a losing battle on this front. Public opinion shows it. Now, obviously where that public opinion goes, does it really impact government policy? Does it impact the level of 
a president at the moment, clearly not. But I do think that social media and the, the ability for, with all the censorship and shadow banning that goes on, that Palestinians are still able to be heard and seen and their experiences conveyed to people is having an impact on how people view this conflict, which to me, that side of it is positive and public opinion is reflecting that. Mm-hmm. All right, Anthony. Um, is it okay if uh, we keep you for just a couple questions and do a segment just for our subscribers? Are you okay with that? Of course, of course. All right, well, then let me do a clean wrap up here. All right, thanks, Anthony. Everybody out there should pick up a copy of the Palestine Laboratory. And uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic book. There's a lot of detail that we haven't gotten into today. Uh, but just to quickly show people that you can go to Verso Books um, and pick up your copy there. Um, I don't know if there's any other particular place you think they should go, Anthony, but mm-hmm. it was uh, obviously published by Verso Books. And uh, your website is also anthonylowenstein.com, where you can find a lot of Anthony's previous work. And if you want to see him break through into the mainstream media or the corporate press, you can see how he was on Mehdi Hassan's show uh, in the last uh, week. So thank you, everyone. And we'll be back next week with another show.